Hello and welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. That's the podcast of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. My name's Adrian Reynolds and I'm here today with John Stevens, who's our National Director, and with Phil Topham, who's our Executive Director, to talk a little bit about independency in general. What is an independent church? We're a fellowship of independent evangelical churches. So, John, what, what is an independent church? Is it, is it a church that's just completely cut off from, from everyone else? What, what is it? How would you define it? Well, there's lots of language that's used to describe different churches, all sorts of terminology. So people will talk about congregational churches, nonconformist churches, free churches and independent churches. Um, So we're trying to navigate our way through the different terminology. The essence of being an independent church is the idea that an individual local church um, is autonomous under the rule of Christ as the head of the church and is able to basically make its own decisions about its life. Um, So the fundamental conviction about independency is that a a, a local church is a real church. And that's in contrast to views that say that the church has to be an institutional body as a whole, like the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, where the church is really the whole entity rather than the individual local congregations. Independency believes that an individual local congregation is a real church and that that independent church is, um, in a sense, able to organise its own affairs under the rule of Christ, mediated by his word, by his spirit. So at the very essence, the idea of um, independency is that the local church is autonomous and self-governing under Christ, that there isn't an external human authority over the life of the church. So that's in contrast to other forms of church government, where there's some external authority that can tell the local church what to do, whether that be, for example, an Episcopalian system in which you have a bishop who has authority over the local church, or a Presbyterian system, where you have um, uh, other local churches exercising authority over the local church by their leaders coming together to form a presbytery which will make key decisions. It it really cashes out in terms of key decisions in church life, Um, for example, over what the doctrine of the church is to be, um, issues of who is appointed as minister and leaders of the local church, how the church chooses to spend its its money, um, uh, the exercise of church discipline and when the church chooses to excommunicate people from members. So it says absolutely fundamental decisions about the life of the church. Um, Independency believes that the church is able to make those decisions for itself under the headship of Christ. Presumably there are always some constraints on churches legal, contextual, and what have you, how do they not threaten what you've just described? Uh, Well, that's certainly true. That's part of the the legal framework of um, the context in which the church um, uh, operates. And every uh, kind of Christian in every country has to operate within the legal framework of um, the country in which they find themselves. Actually, in the history of independency, um, independents, like other Christians, believe that the church has a primary responsibility to obey Christ rather than the state. So in actual fact, if there were a conflict between what the state were requiring and what um, independence believed the Bible was requiring, then independence would be willing to um, go by the Bible rather than go by what the state says. And that's just a long history of independence um, refusing to comply with what the state has said. So, for example, the origins of independency um, uh, in the um, 16th and 17th century, um, independence uh, set up churches that were outside of the Church of England at a time in which the state was trying to impose a particular model of Christianity. And independence said that didn't fit with what we believe the Bible to 
teachers, and they were prepared to um, uh, set up their own churches on a biblical pattern. And a number were martyred or executed or sent into exile precisely because they wanted to reflect a biblical model of church. Fortunately, in the UK, uh, many of the legal requirements on churches don't, in fact, compromise the ability to be an independent church. They don't impact on the doctrine that you teach. They largely are concerned with proper financial management. And um, actually, biblical churches would want to comply with that um, in any event. Well, we'll come back to the history in just a moment. Phil, let me ask you briefly about this, because you were an elder before you came and joined um, mm. the FIC staff. You were an elder in a local church. Mm. T- tell us a little bit about that church in, in broad details and tell us how independency kind of cashed out for you. Mm. Um, so John's described it in terms of theory, if you like. Um, how does it actually work? How did it work in practice for you um, in, in Wrexham? Yeah, so, so I was an elder at Gwersalt Congregational Church uh, in Wrexham, so that's just outside Wrexham. Uh, and we had a, a decent uh, grouping of independent churches. And what was really interesting was those churches, although they were independent, they were interdependent in some way. So actually, the reason that Kath and I ended up moving to Gwersalt was because I'd been invited to speak at a Christmas event at Gwersalt um, from our current church which was at the time Ebenezer Baptist another FIC church uh, in in Mould Uh, and they invited me to speak at Christmas time and after that sat down with the leaders and they said look would you be willing you and Kath to to come and join us at the church we could do with some um, uh, more senior uh, or um, uh, mature Christians joining us. Yeah, you're a young guy. Well yeah well there there we are Um, so, uh, so, so that's what happened and actually what happened was Ebenezer sent us to, to Gwersalt really and so I remember uh, in Ebenezer we sat around the Lord's table one Sunday uh, and the pastor at the time um, Morris Kinnaird he, he explained to the church that, that, that Kath and I would be moving on to, to serving to serving Gwersalt uh, and that was really how it happened so that, there was a, a great interdependency going on there so even though um, I was called into the church at Gwersalt and called into the leadership eventually of the church in Gwersalt after we'd moved there there was a great relationship between the churches which, which, which was really important so yes they were independent and of course, Gwersalt was congregational in a way that, that Ebenezer wasn't in quite the same way. But that was how it cashed out, really. There was an interdependency between the churches. We'll, we'll come back to interdependency in another episode because it's such an important mm. subject and especially how do independent churches make sure they're not isolated, mm. I guess. You just hinted there that there is some distinction. There's some differences between independent churches. You've described how um, Ebenezer in Mould operates in a different way from, from Gwersal. Just just unpack that for us a little bit and then John I'll come back to you and ask a little bit about what, what is the breadth that we discover within independency in the UK at the moment. So there's lots of different ways aren't there that independent churches can be governed. So some churches will have a, a congregational government like Gwersal did. That means that everything is brought to the church meeting. It requires a vote constitutionally and um, because the, the, the power is located in the congregation in one sense. So the congregation makes decisions for the whole church. Whereas other churches would work slightly different so major decisions would be brought to the church, for example, the calling of, of pastors, leaders, elders, deacons, perhaps. But some of those other day to day operations of the church wouldn't be brought to the church meeting in quite the same way. So the church wouldn't uh, have the power held in the congregation in quite the way that it would be in a congregational setting. So some churches would be elder led. Some churches would have a pastor and deacons model. There would be different models of the way the church is led across different independent churches. And that was certainly the case uh, around uh, Wrexham in, in North Wales. But of course, the churches were still able to, to cooperate and work together. And John, what, what other breadth do we find in terms of how that independency you've described kind of a theoretical level cashes out in the local church? 
Uh, well, I think the very nature of independence is that local churches have the right to make their own decisions um, uh, about a whole variety of things. Phil's already spoken about the way they organise themselves and the way that decisions are actually made within the life of the local church. But independent churches have um, the ability to make different decisions about their doctrinal position and their practice, as they believe is the case under uh, scripture. So there'll be a diversity of views on a whole variety of what we might call secondary issues in relation to um, the life of the church. So you find independent churches that will be Baptist in their practice, independent churches that would be pedo-baptist in their practice. Historically, um, within uh, English uh, independency, those two streams um, go right back to the Reformation. So um, in the time of the Reformation, there were Congregationalists who were pedo-baptists and Baptists um, who practiced uh, believers' baptism. Actually, both are found within the FIEC family. But that would be one distinction. There'll be lots of other distinctions. So within independency, there'll be a variety of different views on, for example, things like the use of spiritual gifts in churches today. There'll be different opinions on eschatology and the return of the, the, the Lord Jesus. There'll be different understandings of ordination to ministry within the life of the local church. So independency and saying that a church is independent actually tells you very little about the life of the local church. It tells you very little about what it believes, about its practices. It tells you very little about exactly how decisions are made in the life of um, the church. And therefore, in a sense, independency is just one very small aspect of the way that churches um, operate, uh, but it's a really important one because it essentially means that the local church has the right to make decisions uh, for itself. When I'm, I told my parents um, that I was going to become a, a trained for ministry and um, in a non-conformist church, I think they thought I was a bit weird. And, and there is a sense in the world, isn't it, that when you, you talk about the church, people Im immediately assume, you know, St. Dunstan's that's down the road. Uh, are there any St. Adrian's? I don't know. There should be. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of the Anglican church down the road or the Roman Catholic church, whatever it, it may be, perhaps a Methodist church at, at a stretch. Um, you've already hinted at the fact that nonconformity isn't novel, um, but it is still kind of it just seems to be at the periphery of Christianity as people look on. Just give us a, a broad sweep. John, of how it fits in the in the historical narrative. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I think we have something of a skewed perspective because we live in um, sort of Britain and we've got a history of established churches, which are seen as being the kind of the normal form of church. So within um, England, the Church of England, the Church of Wales, the Church of Scotland, they... they the impression is gained that that's what proper church is and therefore anything that is other than that is somehow seen as strange or unusual and that's that's part of our history but that is in world terms unusual so independence is in fact the normal model of church uh, around most of the world. If you were to ask what are most churches around the world, most churches around the world are actually independent in their form of government. Of evangelical um, churches? Uh, of all churches, okay. but uh, sort of particularly of, ev of evangelical churches. So independency in worldwide terms is not strange and unusual. It's actually a normal model of church that the, the majority of evangelical Christians believe is the biblical model for how church should be established. Um, in Britain, it goes back to the Reformation. When the Reformation occurred in the 16th century, um, obviously the, the Roman Catholic model of church, which was a very feudal and monarchical model of church, was gradually being um, reformed and changed. Uh, the first stages of the Reformation focused particularly on the recovery of the doctrine of salvation, justification by faith alone. But as people then began to engage with the Bible, they began to ask questions about how churches should be organised and where authority lies. And as that process happened, people began to argue um, that the Bible spoke about a different model of church. 
So people began to come to independent convictions. They saw that in the Bible there wasn't the office of pope or of bishop. They didn't find in the Bible evidence of presbyteries that would kind of control local churches. They saw local churches appointing their own elders, making their own decisions, exercising discipline within the kind of the life of the congregation without an external authority. And so they came to the conviction that um, churches ought to be um, independent. And that was really towards the end of the 16th century that there were the first seeds of independence that was sown um, in uh, England and a number of people broke away from the Church of England to set up independent churches. Many of them, as I've said, were persecuted but they continued to um, develop. Um, uh, sort of English exiles in the Netherlands in particular established independent congregations in the Netherlands and learnt from some of the uh, continental um, reformers. Um, ultimately, many of those who uh, migrated to America, the Pilgrim Fathers, those going to New England, went to set up independent churches in America because they didn't have that freedom uh, in Britain. So out of that, you develop the strands of um, firstly congregationalism, which was, um, as I've said, Peter Baptist in form um, and then Baptist churches began to emerge that believed in believers baptism um, and, and I think it's worth recognizing that churches that describe themselves as congregational or Baptist are essentially independent churches so there are lots of churches that are independent but they wouldn't use that label to describe themselves so the biggest denomination in, in the world the Southern Baptist Convention in America they are essentially independent uh, uh, kind of churches so even in, in Britain today, there are large numbers of churches that would be independent in their character. So, for example, the churches in the Baptist Union of England and Wales, that's about 1,500 churches. Um, uh, brethren churches would be um, independent in their form of church government. Congregational churches would be independent. And in the FIEC, we've got 635 churches that are, are independent churches. So independency is perhaps larger than people might imagine because they tend to look at the sort of denominational labels that people use rather than ask the question, is, is that an independent uh, uh, church? So I think... Um, um, one of the things that uh, we're encouraging uh, people to do is to just grasp that independency is a normal model of church government um, and around the world it's the dominant form of church government. A couple of things come to mind. You missed off Pentecostal churches on the list. What sort of government would Pentecostal churches normally have? Uh, there's a little bit of a mix within Pentecostalism. So the essence of Pentecostalism is actually a view about um, the work of the Spirit, particularly the need for a second baptism in the Spirit, um, often accompanied by speaking in tongues. Um, so Pentecostalism, uh, again, doesn't define the nature of um, church government and the way that it operates. So there are some um, Pentecostal groupings which are denominational in nature. So, for example, in um, in the UK, the Elim movement would be in the form of a denomination with central control. But there are lots and lots of Pentecostal churches that would also be independent in nature. So, again, um, in the UK context, the Assemblies of God would be a grouping of independent churches that cooperate together that would be Pentecostal in form. And then there are very large numbers of independent um, Pentecostal churches. So many of the churches that came out of the house church movement, many of the churches in the UK that are coming from ethnic communities that have migrated to the UK and have established churches, whether from uh, Africa or South America, would take the form of independent local churches. So independency is actually rapidly growing as more and more churches are being planted. Phil, you, you and I are in a, um, an independent church. We are. Um, it's just over 10 years old, uh, planted with um, out of people who were attending churches in, in South Leicester. It's just interesting to hear a bit of history. Um, tell us about mould. 
tell us about Guersault. What, what was what was their background in terms uh, so, of, of history? So, so Guersault was a congregational church. Um, so it had come out of the congregational movements, but it had become very much detached from um, sort of the more liberal end of the congregational movement. So it was operating independently, but obviously its constitution was still congregational uh, in style and the way the church was governed was still congregational. Uh, Ebenezer was a Baptist church, so Believer's Baptist, um, had a relatively modern building, I think built late 70s, early 80s, but that had come from a independent Baptist chapel in town that the church had outgrown as it grew and built its uh, it, its new church uh, on a housing estate. So yeah, but they very much come from those two um, spectrums that John's talked about within independency, congregationalism and Baptist. And, and Phil, you deal with churches that are joining FIEC. Mm. Um, just broadly, what sorts of backgrounds have they come from? What, what sorts of different backgrounds the churches come from? Yeah, you're very similar, really. So uh, we do see churches that are coming out of some of the historic denominations that John's mentioned. So there'd be churches perhaps that would leave the Baptist Union and want to affiliate to the FIEC. There would be others who have not really found a, a home since being planted from a denomination. So perhaps they were planted under a bishop's mission order from an Anglican church, but have never been part of a diocese. They're operating and functioning uh, independently. So they, they come from that direction. Uh, others would be um, historically independent but had never really joined with any any broader movement so uh, they would want to uh, have that fellowship with a with a wider grouping of churches so a whole host of backgrounds really and we have been talking to um, to others within denominations but but, but it's a, a big journey I think to step away from a denomination that you've been involved in uh, for, for, for so long but uh, yeah lots of different backgrounds lots of different convictions on gifts of the spirit, um, even on, on baptism, for example. So I think it would be fair to say um, most FIEC churches would be believers Baptist. I think that's fair. But there are a significant minority who are who are pedo-baptist in nature, very welcome within and the FIEC. And some who are dual practice. Of course, fact, absolutely. Yeah, yeah which yeah. Gwersort was, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, John, um, Ars Arsene Wenger, just to bring in my football illustration for a moment, <laughs> uh, Arsene Wenger famously told Alex Ferguson that everyone thinks he's got the prettiest wife at home. And, um, the, the, you know, it all sounds very compelling. But um, if I was an Anglican sitting here or a Presbyterian sitting here, I would say, I don't think you've really made your case. And actually, um, the Bible's pretty silent on church government. So it's just as legitimate to have an episcopy or a presbytery as it is to have independence. Just just unpack a little more for us the biblical case for independence as you see it. I think that's absolutely right. And of course, those who hold to different um, ecclesiological positions um, would argue that their positions are either biblical or at least not prevented by the Bible. Um, I think for those who are independents, they'd, they'd say that the Bible does contain rather more information about the way that church should be structured, um, that there is a clear pattern for how churches ought to be ordered that develops in the apostolic period. Um, it becomes particularly clear in the pastoral epistles. But as the gospel goes out from Jerusalem and churches are started, it's inevitable that what we begin to see is the development of structures of church leadership. Um, uh, the apostolic era in some ways was unique because you had the first generation of apostles who oversaw the church as a whole. Um, uh, uh, independents would say that the Bible doesn't see any expectation of a continuing apostolic ministry um, in that form. Um, as the apostolic generation comes to an end, as Paul, for example, hands over the baton to Timothy, he doesn't see any continuation in apostolic ministry in that form because the apostles were uniquely those who saw the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So some models of church government like episcopacy are often based on the idea of an apostolic succession and independents would say they see no evidence for that in the the Bible. Um, instead, the primary office for the leadership of churches in the New Testament is that of elder in the local church. So local churches are established and then elders are appointed to rule and manage the local church. That actually follows on the pattern of the way that synagogues were organised in the um, uh, kind of Jewish world of the time. 
also reflects something of the way that city um, governments were organized within the, within the pagan world. The Bible talks about the office of leader and the languages used of overseer, of elder, and of pastor. Um, and it seems quite clear from letters like 1, 1 Timothy, Titus, uh, Peter, 1 Peter, that those offices are essentially describing the same role. They're not describing different types of leaders in local churches. So the word overseer, which is actually from the way the word bishop comes, is actually the word simply for the local church elder. So independents would say that every local church elder is a bishop. There's no separate office of bishops having responsibility for um, the church over a, a kind of a geographical area of, of, of a diocese. Um, overseer emphasizes the authority of the local church um, uh, leaders. Um, elder emphasizes their seniority within the community, which is why they've been appointed to that office. Pastor emphasizes the responsibility they have to care for the people who are there. So um, uh, independents would say that's the pattern of church leadership that's um, recognized. Um, there seems to be a principle of local churches appointing their own elders. The language in the book of Acts and in the, in the epistles about the appointment of elders seems to speak particularly of the election of people to the office. They're not appointed by some um, external uh, authority. Um, and then the New Testament emphasizes that every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit. Um, this is particularly prominent in, for example, 1 Corinthians, where it speaks of how everybody who has, had, who has been given the Spirit therefore has the mind of Christ. Um, and that's the foundation of the understanding that the church as a whole is able to make decisions. And the idea of um, congregational decision making is not that everybody can fight to get their own way. It's rather that the body as a whole it has been given the spirit in order to be able to discern um, what the Lord Jesus would wish um, in terms of the decision that's making. So, for example, when a church is appointing a pastor or an, or an elder, it's not about a popularity contest between um, uh, the, the members of the congregation. It's more about discerning, is this who the Lord would want to lead this local church? Um, I think as well as appointing leaders, we see that where church discipline is exercised, where somebody is excluded from membership of the church because of unrepentant sin, uh, again, the New Testament pictures that as being a decision of the body as a whole. So we see, for example, in Corinthians, Paul urging the whole church to come together and um, expel from the church community um, the unrepentant uh, sort of sinner. So I think there's quite a lot of material in the New Testament that describes how uh, the church operates. And independents would say that um, episcopacy or, or Presbyterianism, there's not a lot of biblical support for them. Um, and that in the end, the arguments in favor of episcopacy and, and Presbyterianism tend to rest on pragmatics rather than um, a sort of a, actually biblical warrant for those models uh, of church government. You've paint, painted this very idealized picture. I almost feel like I've got a one foot in glory already. Um, <laughs> presumably, independency goes wrong. I mean, there, there must be some downsides to it or some some particular um corporate sins that it that encourages what, what are some of those let's be realistic what what are some of those that's, that's absolutely right and the bible is utterly realistic most mm. of the new testament letters even though they describe churches organized on this basis in my view they are churches with all sorts of problems internal tensions doctrinal deviations false teaching so i'm um, simply saying that that is the biblical pattern for how churches ought to be structured and organized is not giving an ideal picture because the new testament recognizes we still live in a fallen sinful world and therefore um uh, churches uh, are 
are bound to have uh, problems and difficulties. And I think it's worth saying that that's actually true of all models of church government. So the kinds of problems that churches can face can actually be replicated in every form of church government. So the mere fact of your model of church government doesn't guarantee you won't have division, you won't have disagreement, you won't have false teaching, you won't fail to exercise discipline. And um, uh, it's absolutely right that there are particular problems that independency um, can have. I think the particular problem for independency is the danger of isolationism. Um, it gives the ability for people to simply set up and run churches without any kind of connection with others, without any kind of accountability. There have been people in the history of the church who've valued independency precisely because it's enabled them to do what they want. And that can lead to um, cults, that can lead to um, uh, abusive practices. Um, uh, 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 there is the, the danger of um, theological drift, that if you don't have some external um, uh, authority, um, uh, maybe it's easier for false teaching and deviation to come in. There's the challenge and the difficulty of not having sufficiently gifted and qualified leaders to be able to guard over the local congregation. So those are, are very real difficulties. There's the problem of division within churches. If you have congregational decision making, then if the congregation is not united, there'll be a very obvious um, division within, within the life of the church. So those problems are uh, part and parcel of uh, independency. But as I said, I think those problems can occur in other forms of church government um, uh, uh, as well. Um, there are uh, churches within Episcopal um, uh, sort of uh, models of church government that have drifted from the gospel, where um, uh, sort of uh, churches become de facto isolationist because they reject the authority of the bishop and become detached from it and effectively um, operate in an isolated way. Um, they fail to exercise church discipline against those people who are um, unrepentant and in sin of the church. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that um, it's exclusively independency. Every model of church government um, will have to confront problems in the life of church because we're still fallen and sinful people. And I think a lot of what independents have done um, over the years is try to find ways of mitigating those difficulties. So for example, at its best, independency has never been the same as isolationism, that independent churches from a very early stage, wanted to come together, work together, support one another, provide a degree of relational accountability. So even though there's not a formal structure, say, for example, for um, doctrinal accountability, the way that it's worked in independency is by churches having fellowship with one another. So churches will enter into active fellowship with other churches that hold to gospel truths. And if those gospel truths are denied by another church, an independent church will break fellowship with that church. They'll refuse to continue to recognize them and work with them. And that operates as a form of relational accountability. And I think very often that's been more effective than uh, accountability within denominational structures. Because once churches are in denominations, it's very difficult for the denomination to remove them and expel them or control them if they deviate from the gospel. And that's why so often in the 20th century in particular, denominations were uh, uh, overtaken by liberalism because in practice, the denomination has a vested interest in keeping as many churches as possible on board and never taking the decision to an exclude, exclude a church. In independency, what tends to happen is that churches that deviate from the gospel are cut off. Um, uh, but actually, uh, churches that hold to the gospel continue to support and encourage one another. So there's a, an effective form of relational accountability that keeps churches faithful to gospel truth. And that's really what FIEC is all about. FIEC was founded just over 100 years ago. And the vision behind FIEC was to overcome the problem of isolation 
of independent churches um, and also to provide a measure of that relational accountability that would ensure that they remained faithful to the gospel. So, for example, in FIEC, every church every year has to reaffirm that it holds by our doctrinal basis and um, our sort of uh, policy statements on ministry, which means that every single year, all 635 churches are recommitting to their evangelical um, gospel convictions. Now, in many denominations, churches join, but they're not asked that question on a regular basis. So drift happens under the surface. So FIEC uh, seeks to provide a kind of relational accountability that in practice is more effective um, uh, uh, than denominational structures because churches every year have to restate their commitment. Phil, um, you were an elder in a, a local church. Mm -hmm. um, glad to be an independent, um, it sounds like. Uh, were the times that you thought, uh, oh, I wish we weren't? Um, I think it's a really interesting question. So I think my generation, so I'll, I'll, I'm 39, uh, everybody wanting to know that, but I'm 39. I think my generation, I grew up in a time where I think as a young Christian, we wanted to go where the Bible was taught and we didn't really give any particular thought to whether that was an independent church or, or part of a denomination. We just wanted to go where the Bible was taught. What's really interesting is all that John's talked about there in terms of denominational drift, that does impact you, I think. And you realise that actually isn't where you want to be. You want to be in an independent church because you come to believe that that is the, the biblical model of church. I think one of the, the, the frustrations I found was... Um, I, I said this carefully, but the credentials of us as leaders always seem to be being questioned by outsiders who are perhaps from denominational groupings. That was quite interesting. It'd be good to get John's opinion on this because often you would hear people asking the question, you know, where did you train? What, what, what are your, you're almost wanting to see the piece of paper to say, oh, now I, I understand now that you've got the credentials to be a, a leader, a preacher. It was fascinating when people realised that you hadn't done any formal training, which I haven't, that the sort of shock about that, I, I don't know why they were shocked. Perhaps it was because I'd spoken terribly or perhaps it was because they thought I'd spoken eloquently and then wanted to know where I'd, I'd done my training, but I hadn't done any formal training. But it's quite interesting, that idea of the local church making those decisions, I don't think that's universally... Uh, appreciated uh, across the church in, in Great Britain. I don't, I don't know if you agree with that, John, but that, that was certainly my my experience as an independent. Um, I think that is um, the case. But again, that just reflects your whole understanding of what the church is. If you don't see the church as being the local church, but you see it as being an institution as a whole that basically authorises ministry everywhere, mm. that's just a framework through which you view those questions. Um, an independent would say the local church has the authority to recognise somebody as being suitably gifted for ministry, which is, after all, all the denomination is doing on a bigger scale. Yeah. So there's actually really no difference between it. Yeah. So lots of independent churches will have a form of ordination in which they set people apart for ministry um, but it's for the local church to ensure that those individuals do meet the proper criteria for uh, local ministry so again we come back to for example 1 Timothy and Titus where some pretty um, clear criteria are, are, are identified for people who are set apart as elders to leave and minister in the local church now it's obviously a failing on the part of a local church if it appoints someone who doesn't meet those criteria mm -hmm. uh, which sadly happens and in independency happens having said that I think um, within the denominations um, you can see I think lots of ways in which people are authorised for ministry who I would say don't meet the biblical criteria at all. So for example within the Anglican church there are lots of people who are ordained who don't come from an evangelical background who don't have the ability to preach and teach the Bible mm. who don't have the doctrinal convictions uh, they don't really even believe the 39 articles and the doctrinal position of the Church of England. Now 
they've, they are authorised by the denomination, but they've been authorised despite the fact that they don't meet those criteria. So I, I think there's a, just a, a cultural difference of thinking yeah. about where authority vests uh, in the church. And again, it comes back to that assumption uh, from an established church model that that way of doing church mm. is the normal and right way, um, as against um, at the independents would say, we, we, we think that biblically it is the local church that appoints suitably qualified um, uh, sort of leaders. I, I guess what you're describing there, Phil, is an external credibility. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think what you're saying, John, is actually it doesn't matter. Yeah. What, what counts is the internal credibility mm. in the local church. It's, it's mm. the local church credibility. That's what that's, that's what actually independency means in terms of uh, acknowledging leadership. I, 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 th- I think that's right. I think that's really important for lay leaders, isn't it? Because how are you ever going to appoint lay leaders if everybody has to go through some sort of formal training? You'd never appoint them. It would become so hierarchical, wouldn't it? Because only the people who had been uh, formally got their external credibility would ever be able to minister, I think. I mean, it's worth saying, again, one of the founding objectives of FIEC 100 years ago when it was founded was precisely to raise the level of training for the leaders of independent churches. There was a recognition that some people were being appointed to lead local churches who perhaps didn't have the necessary training and weren't suitably qualified. And the whole purpose of establishing the fellowship was to raise the quality of training for ministry. So one of the key things we're committed to is wanting to ensure that local church elders and sort of full-time uh, gospel workers are adequately trained for the ministry that they have, have to undertake. And I think um, in terms of this wider public credibility, again, that so reflects a model of the idea of a national church in which the person who is the local vicar is kind of pastor to the entire community. There's an assumption that everybody belongs to the church. So that civic credibility of ministry suddenly becomes hugely important um, and I think for a period, nonconformists, particularly in the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, in a sense, sought that credibility for themselves and wanted to gain credibility in the wider community. Um, I think now we live in a post-Christian culture in which the numbers of people who attend church is very small. I think that has much, much less significance um, uh, as against the ability to be able to minister the gospel, disciple people and lead local churches. So the FIC dog collars have gone. They used to be there, didn't they, initially? <laughs> you look at sort of, I remember preaching in um, a church in London and uh, had the pictures of all the um, all the pastors up on the wall and um, the, the dog collars gradually got smaller and smaller and then disappeared um, at a certain point in time. Well, it's interesting, we have a, a sort of a portrait of Edward Poole Connor, E.J. Poole Connor, who started the FIC. And actually, if you looked at it, not knowing who it was, you'd think they were an Anglo-Catholic Catholic uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, priest because basically he's wearing black and a clerical uh, kind of collar and that simply reflects the culture I think of um, a hundred years ago and uh, in many nonconformist churches where pastors are appointed um, they are ordained to office they're entitled to use the term reverend Um, so there has been that culture although it's, it's obviously much less significant now than it might have been Uh, in a previous generation. We'll come back in a future episode of Independent to to think about the FIEC and exactly what it is and why we need it. Uh, For now, uh, folks, thank you very much. Uh, Let me pray as we finish. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that Jesus is the head of the church. Thank you that the church is uh, the people for whom he died. And Father, thank you for this model that we see, we believe we see in the scripture, we have convictions about And uh, please, will you help us to uh, work that through in practice and in detail in the local church? Please may these episodes that we're recording be a help to people as we try and understand what the Bible has to say and apply it to our local settings in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. See you soon. 
Thanks for listening to Independence, the FIC podcast. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk.